0: There's a big universe out there, and with our own human eyes, even if we ate it with the power of telescopes, magnification, light gathering power, better resolution, and all of that, we're still limited in what we can see out there. And that's because. The information that the universe emits doesn't just come in visible light, but comes all across the electromagnetic spectrum from very short wavelength, high frequency, high energy, gamma ray photons, all the way down through x-ray, ultraviolet, visible light, infrared microwave, down to radio waves, the longest wavelength, lowest energy, lowest frequency light that there is. Although we normally think about what's out there in terms of what would our human eyes see, it's often more interesting and more informative to look in other wavelengths of light. And specifically, there's a ton of information out there in the infrared at longer wavelengths than human eyes can see. Astronomers are taking advantage of this to image and investigate the universe as never before. How are we doing it and what are our next tools that are going to lead us to whatever scientific revolutions are out there? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. For most of human history, astronomy was restricted to what we call optical astronomy, where we would look at the universe and record the same types of light that our eyes are capable of seeing. But as the 20th century and now the 21st century have come upon us, we've started to look at much, much broader sets of information. And here to help tell us about how we're going to investigate the universe and how we're learning about what's out there far beyond what visible light can tell us, I'm so pleased to welcome two guests to our program today. Research professor Dr. Stacey Alberts, and research professor Dr. Christina Williams. Both of them are scientists who work at Stewart Observatory at the University of Arizona, and I'm so pleased to be able to welcome them both to the show. Stacy, Christina, it's my pleasure to have you here.
1: It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks
0: for having us. Yeah, I'm so excited. I was able to meet you earlier this year because you two are part of the James Webb Space Telescope instrument teams. You work with NIRCAM, the near-infrared camera, and MIRI, the mid-infrared instrument. But before we get into all of that, I'd like to ask you, when it comes to infrared astronomy, what are we missing when we look at the universe in visible light alone? And how can looking at the universe in infrared light fill in some of those gaps and tell us about information that would otherwise be completely obscure to us if we restricted ourselves to optical astronomy alone?
2: So one of my favorite things uh, that I work on, uh, I like to work on things that kind of throw people for a loop uh, in astronomy. And one of those things is dust. So out there in the universe, there's cosmic dust. Uh, It's not exactly the same as the dust that you're familiar with in your house. Um, It's a lot of small particles that are kind of like smoke and there's some bigger particles that are kind of like soot. And this this dust is everywhere in the universe. It's in galaxies, it's surrounding stars, it's surrounding black holes. And so things like stars and the accretion disks around black holes, they give off very, very high energy photons, uh, which are light. And that light encounters this cosmic dust and it gets absorbed by the cosmic dust. And then it gets re-emitted into the infrared.
0: What you're talking about to me sounds a lot like uh, what we think about when we think about what happens to planet Earth. That planet Earth is over here, 93 million miles away from the sun. And the sun radiates all over the planet wherever it strikes us. And it hits us with ultraviolet and visible, and a little bit of infrared light. But then Earth absorbs it, but Earth doesn't radiate away ultraviolet and visible and infrared light. Earth radiates primarily in the infrared and at much longer wavelengths than the sun radiates at. Is dust basically just like tiny, tiny, tiny planet Earths out there in space?
2: Yeah, I suppose it's a little bit So the Earth's atmosphere is, of course, filled with lots of atoms and molecules. uh, And those are what are absorbing the the light from the sun um, and kind of redirecting it back into space or bringing it down here uh, to us. And so, yeah, cosmic dust is similar sitting in galaxies. It's absorbing the light coming from young stars uh, and then re-emitting them in the infrared, re-emitting that light into the infrared. Uh, And so if you only looked in the UV The ultraviolet or the optical uh, you would miss a lot of material that's hidden behind dust so you would miss a lot of the young stars that are being born in the universe you would miss a lot of the black holes uh, that are accreting their surrounding materials and so going out into the infrared allows us to find these hidden sources of energy and understand um, how they are powering the galaxies they live
0: in another thing that i worry about is the expansion of the universe Because if I were to say, hey, there are stars and galaxies all over the universe, and I want to see them all, my eyes aren't very good tools for that. I can look out a certain distance, and I can see stars and galaxies out to a certain point. But the farther away I look, the less blue stars and blue galaxies I'm going to see, and the more red stars and red galaxies I'm going to see. And then beyond that, I won't see any stars and galaxies at all. But this isn't because galaxies are redder the farther away you look. In fact, it's the opposite. Intrinsically, these galaxies are generally intrinsically bluer. They're emitting more blue light. They have higher populations of younger stars in them. So they should be bluer. They should be hotter. But the expansion of the universe takes this light that they emit of a certain wavelength. And as that light travels through the universe, it stretches it. Am I just hopeless? When I, when I say I want to see these distant galaxies, am I hopeless because my eyes will fail me? Or is there a way that I can reveal these galaxies after all, and maybe even reconstruct what their intrinsic properties are from what we observe?
1: Yeah, so I would say that the case is not hopeless. So you're right that, you know, the universe Is expanding since the Big Bang so that means that all of the galaxies in the very distant universe and all of the stars in those galaxies their light has been uh, shifted redder and redder the farther away those galaxies are Um, so what that means is that we just need to see redder and fainter in order to find those first stars and first galaxies that first form in the universe and so Uh, With the James Webb Space Telescope, for example, we'll be able to see some of these early distant galaxies and and the stars in those galaxies that uh, have been, are intrinsically blue, but have been shifted to the red. And uh, so we'll be able to see those
0: hopefully soon. I mean, that's great. I hope for that, too, because uh, as far as I know, we haven't yet hit that limit for where there shouldn't be any more stars and galaxies. We we have a limit as far as what telescopes like Hubble have been able to reveal, and they've taken us very, very far back into the universe. I think the most distant galaxy that Hubble's ever seen comes to us from when the universe was just 3% of its current age but we should be forming stars and maybe the earliest galaxies before that back to when it was maybe 2% 1% or even half a percent of its current age um do we have like do we have any reason to believe that what hubble has seen that as far back as we've ever seen is actually as far back as we're going to see or do we fully expect that there's more stuff out there beyond the limits of where our instruments have taken us so far.
1: Well, actually, Hubble has taught us that there is for sure things that are farther away than that one galaxy that that the, is the most distant galaxy that Hubble has identified. So that galaxy existed when the universe was 400 million years old. So it's extremely fast after the Big Bang. But that galaxy had already built up a pretty large population of stars, and had already produced a lot of metals that had gotten ejected into the sort of the surroundings of the stars in that galaxy, uh, from, you know, the first generation of stars that formed in that galaxy ejected metals, and those metals are now sitting in the galaxy. So we can, we know that this galaxy had actually been around for at least one generation of stars. Um, so, So we know that more activity is earlier in the universe than that object, but we haven't been able to see it yet this galaxy that was discovered by hubble does imply that there's a lot of activity in the very early universe that we have missed and so we need redder telescopes with the capability to see fainter in order to see the first stars and galaxies
0: that form in the universe so what you're telling me is if i look back in the early universe and i don't just see like grown-ups and i don't just see children but i see toddlers I should assume that there are infants and newborns back there as well. Yes. Okay.
1: Yes. In fact, that that is that is what is implied by the the galaxies that have been discovered by Hubble.
0: Great, great. So we so, know
1: those things are out there.
0: Yeah. So they're not the very first galaxies. They're they're early galaxies, but we expect that, you know, they had to come from somewhere and we have not yet seen the start of the formation of a galaxy yet.
1: Yes, that's exactly right.
0: Yeah. Now, I would I would worry putting these two things together that these early galaxies would probably be full of dust as well. And I would also worry um oh, will there also be dust in between these ultra distant galaxies and the telescopes we're using to observe them? Is this something that's out there or is there, you know, some place where you're like, you know what, dust doesn't matter here anymore?
2: So that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, and that's a really open question uh, in the field of astronomy right now is where do we expect to find dust in the high redshift universe? Uh, and actually, you don't expect the very first galaxies to have any dust at all. So what characterizes the very first stars and the very first galaxies is that they are formed of the materials that were made in the Big Bang. And we know that those materials are just hydrogen, helium, and tiny bits of lithium and a little bit of beryllium. So the universe has to create everything else. And uh, Christina mentioned earlier the word metals. So this is this is astronomy speak. Uh, we call anything that is heavier than lithium metals. Uh, and so these metals have to be created after the first stars are formed out of the materials that were created in the Big Bang. And so these first stars, they form, they live very short lives uh, and then they explode. And those explosions are when we start to get these first metals. And that's how you build up chemicals in space. And that's eventually how you get dust as well. So there's a couple of ways to make dust. You can make them in supernova or you can make them in what's called an asymptotic giant branch star. So it's just a fancy star that can make dust of certain kinds. And those stars come later. So it takes some time for the universe to build up dust. And we don't know exactly where uh, that kind of becomes very important. So people, a lot of people like to say that, you know, you go to you go to earlier in the universe, you don't have to worry about dust anymore. Uh, But we have telescopes like the ALMA telescope uh, in Chile, and they are able to look at very, very far wavelengths and they are finding evidence of dust in the high-wretched universe. So this is something that we're going to try and figure out is when uh, when dust and various metals, uh, how they build up since the beginning of the universe.
0: So this is kind of interesting because to me, when I think of dust, I think about like small little grain like clumps of neutral matter. And I don't often think what it has to be made out of. But you're telling me like, well, let's take some molecules like hydrogen, like a hydrogen molecule. That's not dust. If I say, oh, let's take what they call the first molecule in the universe, which is helium hydride, which is, I believe, a helium molecule and a hydrogen ion bound together. That's not dust. If you want dust, you pretty much have to have at least like carbon, oxygen, and some some heavier elements. And that means, because you said Big Bang only gives you hydrogen, helium, and a tiny bit of lithium, and an even tinier amount of beryllium that decays to lithium, um, and that's it. So if you want dust, does that mean if you see dust, that you are looking at a part of the universe where stars have already formed?
2: Right. That's, yeah. That's exactly what we're going to look for when we look for it. Well, so when we go out and we try and find the highest redshift galaxy, so the youngest galaxy that we can possibly find, if we find a candidate uh, for the youngest galaxy, but then we see that it has metals in it, we know it's not the youngest galaxy because it can't have metals yet. It is the thing that forms metals later. Uh, those first galaxies, those first stars and those first galaxies are the things that form the metals that we see later. So if you see metals in them already, you already know that a certain amount of time has passed and that they are older galaxies.
0: Now, this, this is kind of interesting to me because I'm usually when I, when I do these podcasts, I'm usually the oldest person on this call and today is no exception. So. Way back when I was doing my PhD in astronomy, we didn't really hope to get things like a pristine sample of the universe, because that was just not a thing that was in the cards with the technology we had. And what we would do instead is we would look at, say, the abundances of various elements or various metals or various isotopes, uh, and we would sort of say, okay, well, here's what the rich ones look like, and here's what the less rich ones look like look like. And so let's extrapolate back based on what we see um, to what we expect to be there for the very first pristine clouds of gas or the pristine forms of matter or the very first stars. Um, Astronomy has changed since then. Like I know that's a method we still use, but that's not um, the best method. Why is and this can be for either of you, why is a direct observation so much more valuable than doing something like these extrapolated things from observations? Why is it so much more valuable to say, I'm going to go out and measure this population directly rather than inferring what this population has to be from the things that I can see easily?
1: I guess I could try to answer that. I, I think one major problem in astronomy right now is that we actually don't know for sure what the first generation of stars look like, You know how, how massive they are, how proximate they are to other stars, what their supernova look like, and therefore what kind of elements would be generated in that supernova ejecta. I mean, there's just all of these unknowns about the early universe. And so when you try to infer something about those first generation of stars, it's actually subject to a lot of problems because we just don't know what they should look like to begin with so i think there's going to be a lot of power in observing these first i'm sorry i keep saying the first generation of stars but what i really mean is the first few generations of stars meaning that early generations of stars in the distant universe which we still don't really understand uh, you know what what kinds of stars the early universe will produce
0: all right. Well, I'm I'm going to tell you a story then, uh, and this is this is my understanding of what uh, of how the universe uh, first forms stars and galaxies uh, in my head. This is the theoretical picture I have. And then what I'd like you to do is to either correct me where I need correction, or tell me what we're going to look for that can either confirm or refute this picture. So I imagine we have the Big Bang, we make our light elements, we make hydrogen, we make helium, we make a tiny, tiny bit of lithium, and then we have these little gravitational imperfections, and they take time to grow and draw more matter into them. And only when they get big enough can they start to gravitationally contract. Now, In the modern universe, when things start to gravitationally contract, um, they have a lot of heat to shed. They have a lot of energy that needs to be radiated away. And the thing that's most effective at radiating this heat away is dust, which doesn't exist in the early universe. So you instead need much larger clouds of gas to get a collapse. You need much more mass. And the ways you have of radiating things away through molecules like molecular hydrogen, um, they're very inefficient. So what we expect, I would think, would be Unlike the stars we form today, which on average are maybe only 40% the mass of the Sun, the very early universe's first stars are gonna be much more massive because they need more massive clouds. But if you're more massive, That means your lifetime is shorter because your core is bigger and hotter and burns through its fuel faster. So I would expect that we would, if we could see these first stars, uh, they would live only a very short amount of time and they would die spectacularly and you would wind up triggering almost immediately new generations of stars that suddenly aren't pristine anymore. And then star clusters will gravitate. They will merge together. They will grow. They will draw in surrounding matters. And at some point, will cross a threshold where we'll say, this is not just stars or star clusters anymore. This is its own galaxy or proto-galaxy. And you might have components of that galaxy where new pristine matter is coming in and forming stars for the first time. So you might actually see populations side by side in the same object where parts of it are more evolved and more what you call metal-rich. Is that... What we expect to see and basically we just hope to grab the earliest things we can see But we're just going to have to see what's out there and see if this picture is right or not Um, Is this something that we worry like do we have legitimate worries that something is wrong with this picture? Um, Are there possible caveats like hey, what if the universe is born with? black holes already in it. Does that change the story dramatically? Are these questions that we can hope to answer in the coming decade or so?
2: Yeah, so the picture you've just outlined, uh, I think is the the basic picture that we have in mind for these uh, these very early stars, which we call population three stars. So as you said, they are lacking in the things that can cool them off. And so you get all of this material contracting, gravitationally contracting into a small amount of area, and you generate a lot of energy, and it just forms this massive star that is short-lived and goes off in this massive supernova very, very quickly. That right there is exactly why it's going to be really hard for us to observe these, is because they do go off very quickly. It's a very short-lived phase. So in in astronomy, when you're studying the universe, one of the, the really difficult things about it is that you're always just looking at snapshots in time, right? you're never looking at something, not never, but when you look in the the distant universe, you can't see things changing because they're changing over long amounts of time. Uh, When I say that the the stars are very short-lived, it's still a long enough amount of time that we wouldn't be able to see it changing. But it's a short enough amount of time that it's just difficult to catch these guys. They go off very quickly. And so observing them is very difficult. And we also just don't know exactly how bright they are so that we have the general idea that they're very bright and they're very massive and they go off very quickly but we don't know exactly how bright they are so with with the james webb space telescope i think that our best bet is going to be looking for um galaxies made of these population three stars uh where you have a bunch of them together and maybe you can see them because they're brighter that way all together but as you said earlier you start to form metals very quickly. They, they're short-lived and they start to form metals. And now you're doing what we call polluting uh, the materials that can form new stars. And that's how you start to get the population two stars. That's how you move on to the next generation. And so this happens also very quickly. So it just it, we're trying to catch a very short phase in basically the history of the universe. And that's kind of what makes it difficult.
0: Well, I like that. I like that explanation because it tells me um, what we're up against, right? We're, we're looking at the universe out here and we're like, look, we can tell uh, a clean story, but in reality, these actual astrophysical environments are gonna be dirty in the sense that you're gonna have all of these things mixed together. As soon as you form these stars, Uh, you're going to have the most massive stars burn through their fuel the fastest, die the fastest, and enrich the interstellar medium around them. And that could be the difference between looking back to when the universe is 149 million years old and we have population three stars in this region of space for the first time and 151 million years old, and now we've already got population two stars in there. So it seems like what you're saying is if you want to catch only these pristine stars by themselves, uh, you're going to have to get lucky. You're not only going to have to get good, you're going to have to get lucky. Um, So what we are prepared for is to not get lucky. And we might get lucky, but we're prepared for, okay, this is something where we expect the signal we're looking for and the pollutant effect of maybe the signal that some other astronomer is looking for right like if if you're looking for dust and i'm not looking for dust like i want you to do a good job at telling me all the dust that's out there and doing your dust analysis so i can subtract it out and do the non-dust related thing i want Um, But similarly, if you're studying population three stars and someone else is like, oh, well, I know all about population two stars and I want to quantify that signal. You want the population two stars people to really understand what they're doing so that they can say, I'm accounting for all of this and look at what's left over. And maybe there are actually some population three stars in there too.
2: That's a really good way of putting it. We are basically building this puzzle By looking at a bunch of snapshots in a a bunch of different places both spatially and temporally and putting this puzzle together and you really need all the pieces to come together to understand what you're looking at and so we're going to be one of the very exciting things about web is that we're going to be looking for these very very high redshift first galaxies or even first stars but we don't we don't totally understand the galaxies that are much much closer to us Uh, and so that's going to be a big amount of discovery space For web as well and is that we are going to be looking at galaxies that you know are these population two uh made of these population two stars a little bit after you form the first stars and galaxies but then also we're going to be looking at galaxies that are at the what we call the peak epoch of uh the cosmic star formation rate so galaxies are forming stars right but they're not always forming stars in the same way they're not always forming stars efficiently so something like 3 billion years after the Big Bang, we find this peak in the star formation activity that's happening in the universe across all galaxies. Uh, and we don't really understand yet uh, why the gal- the galaxies are forming stars very efficiently at that time. That also happens to be when black holes are doing the most uh, amount of activity as well. They're creating the most amount of material, and so they are lit up. And, those two things are probably linked, but we have not actually figured out exactly what the link is or exactly why it peaks at that time. And understanding those galaxies will allow us to then project back in time to what we thought the first conditions were. We can model things a little bit better. It's always about kind of building, yeah, building a better and better idea or a model of what you expect and then going out and trying to actually observe it and see how, see how things are actually different. But we need all the pieces of the puzzle be able
0: to figure this out. So one of the things that I, I wonder about is we've already had some of these observatories that can tell us about what's out there in the infrared universe. Here on the ground we have a uh, 8 to 10 meter class telescopes that are excellent at observing in at least certain windows that the atmosphere can let in in the near-infrared part of the spectrum. And then out in space, we've had telescopes like Spitzer and Wise and Herschel that have looked in the near-infrared, the mid-infrared, and the far-infrared parts of the spectrum. So we've actually gotten to look at the universe in these different wavelengths of light but you're telling me that not only for the ultra-distant objects which you'd want a larger more sophisticated more powerful telescope but even the nearby galaxies that we look at there are still a whole slew of things that we wished we could learn about, uh, but that remain ambiguous to us. What are what are some of the things we've learned about the universe by observing it in the infrared? And what are some of the things that we don't yet know that we, we require a better observatory for than the ones we've already had?
2: Uh, yeah. So, you know, infrared astronomy compared to optical astronomy is actually really quite young. Uh, It kind of got, it really got started in kind of the 80s. um, And then in kind of the 2000s, we started to have some space telescopes that were just opening up a totally different universe uh, for us to see. So one of the great observatories uh, that came around about in the 2000s was the Spitzer Space Telescope. And so the Spitzer Space Telescope uh, had multiple instruments that were able to look into the near-infrared wavelengths and also the mid-infrared wavelengths. And this allowed us to look like we were talking earlier, uh, to earlier in the universe. And one of the things that we discovered was the luminous black holes, uh, that we knew, we knew they existed nearby. We can see them in other ways, like such as through x-rays. One of the things that Spitzer was able to do for us was it was able to reveal an entirely new population of, uh, luminous black holes that we didn't know existed. And that's because as we were talking earlier, they are surrounded by dust. And so, this dust is absorbing the uh, high energy photons that the black hole is giving off from its accretion disk. And that is making it kind of invisible to us in the ways that we would usually look at it, such as looking at X rays or looking in the optical. And so, Spitzer was able to do this uh, by looking in the near and the mid infrared and found this population that was missing. Uh, But, Spitzer It was a relatively small telescope. It it just had a mirror that was 85 centimeters in diameter. That's super tiny.
0: 85 centimeters, that's what? That's like two and a half feet? That's like my arm from the shoulder to my fingertip? Like that's how big Spitzer is?
2: Yeah, about that. It's 33 inches. So yeah, that sounds about right. So Spitzer was able to see these black holes that were hidden behind dust, but it was only able to see the ones that were the most luminous. It was only able to see the ones that were accreting at the highest rates from the material that surrounds the black hole. And so what we suspect and what we have hints of from nearby galaxies is that there are way more of these black holes that are hidden behind dust and they've essentially been invisible to us. Uh, it might be that we have only found half of the black holes that are accreting uh, at this kind of like peak epoch of when all this activity is happening and so with jwst uh, we can go out and we can do a much better job of finding these because we have more sensitivity we have more resolution and we also have more wavelength coverage uh, than spitzer had
0: i know that spitzer um it had like it had this range of wavelengths over which it could look and it could say like okay i can see a little bit at like you know maybe two microns over here I could see over here at like eight microns and I could see way out here at like 24 microns and I think there are a few others but it couldn't really give you that narrow resolution of looking like it's basically like painting with a with a giant thick paintbrush Um, And maybe you get like four or five of those versus painting with a very narrow paintbrush and getting this very, very uh, refined gradient. Is that kind of the difference between Spitzer and James Webb? Or is James Webb going to be even more sophisticated than that?
2: Yeah. So that's one of the things that's going to allow us to do this better. So the thing that makes these these less luminous black holes hard to find is that they're sitting in a luminous host galaxy. So the signal that you're looking for is just kind of peeking out over the host galaxy. And so you have to look in specific places and you have to be very sensitive so that you can kind of tease out that excess signal over what you would see from the host galaxy anyway. And so the increased wavelength coverage that you were just talking about that we have with say the MIRI instrument, uh, that allows us to tease that out in, in conjunction with the much greater sensitivity that we get from James Webb because it has such a much bigger aperture. So we have a 6.5 meter aperture this time, uh, which is 21 feet.
0: It's 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 big. Six, six and a half meters is like, um, it's basically like half the size of a full size bus.
2: Yeah, so this, this increased aperture or mirror just acts as this like much bigger light bucket so we can collect way more light and so we're way more sensitive. And so now we have the coverage in wavelength and we have the sensitivity and so we can go out and we can tease out this little excess signal that's coming from, you know, a black hole that's accreting but not, you know, the most luminous black hole in the universe. So we may be missing uh up to 50% of the black holes uh that are accreting material in these host galaxies and that is going to affect how the galaxies uh evolve with time and so understanding where all the black holes are what kind of galaxies they live in and then then that gets us to the question of what kind of influence can they have on their galaxy are they helping to drive how these galaxies change over time but first we have to find them all so that we can answer that question
0: so i had and perhaps this is mistaken um, I had this impression in my head that you know with the observatories we've already had, things like Hubble, Spitzer, chandra and 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 many other many other observatories, both in space and also on the ground, that we have a pretty good idea of what the universe looks like in terms of various snapshots. But we don't have a good idea of how the universe grew up. We don't have a very good idea of how uh, the earliest galaxies came to be the way they are. And we don't have a good example, or we don't have a good uh, evolutionary story of how these galaxies grow up from toddlers through childhood, through adolescence to become adults. um, And that James Webb would help tremendously with this. But I'm also hearing that Uh, in terms of what the universe actually looks like, uh, it's like we're seeing it from, uh, like through these, through these lenses that distort everything or that fuzz everything out. It's like, uh, it's like rubbing Vaseline on the lens or something. Like it looks, it looks kind of soft. Um, which is to say there are fine features in many of these galaxies, uh, that it sounds like we're not even seeing yet and so one of the things James Webb will help with is actually seeing details in these galaxies that we suspect are there but that our current instruments just haven't been sensitive enough to pick out
1: yeah i think that's true there i would say that there are major gaps in our understanding of how galaxies grow over pretty much all of cosmic time i mean we talked a little bit about the very earliest galaxies but even even mature galaxies that are relatively nearby compared to the distant universe Though, i mean there's still things we don't understand about how they grow we don't really know how accurately we're counting the new stars that they form you know per year so like you know sort of our standard metric for for measuring how fast galaxies are growing we don't even really know if that's a very accurate measurement we also don't have a good handle on how many stars formed in the past inside galaxies so just for example like when galaxies form new stars only a minority of those stars are actually big hot massive blue stars like we talked about earlier the majority of them are very low mass Stars that are even lower mass than the sun, for example, and so without the infrared, you can't even count how many of those stars there are. So you're you're sort of missing an entire part of the galaxies as a whole by not looking at the infrared.
0: I mean, this is this is the classic problem of astronomy, right? We I learned it as bias, and then as I got a little more advanced, I learned it as Malmquist bias, which is basically look. Um, Whenever you have an observatory, what are you going to see? You're going to see the brightest, closest examples of what you're sensitive to. And so when you hit that limit of what you're sensitive to, you know everything fainter than this I'm not seeing everything below this brightness that's also beyond a certain distance, I'm not seeing. Um, And so when you're like, I'm seeing the most distant objects that I can see, you know that those are the brightest examples of what's out there. Those are the easiest to see examples of what is out there. Um, And so as you come closer, as you come larger, as you come brighter, um, yeah, you're able to see more details in things. You're able to see greater amounts of the total amount of information that's out there. Um, But this is part of the challenge, is that you can only see what your instruments allow you to see. And it sounds like what you're trying to tell me is that James Webb, yeah, you can get excited about these ultra-distant things, the new cosmic records that it's gonna break. And you can get excited about the fainter objects that it's going to reveal all over the universe that our current observatories haven't. But you should also get excited about two other things. One is you should get excited that we're going to have much more numbers of examples of some of the rarest, faintest objects we've seen. Because maybe they're not rare. Maybe they're just at or beyond the limits of what we've been able to see and also there are things in nearby galaxies details that we haven't been able to tease out things on the faint end of the spectrum and that once we have a superior observatory operating observing the universe right seeing things as we've never seen them before that's going to take uh our knowledge from okay we're not making inferences about what's going to be out there anymore. We're making measurements of what is out there. And that's that. that can often represent a huge leap in knowledge because we're operating on an ignorant level right now because we're just assuming. And it's possible, and as is often the case, uh, that there may be things going on where the universe has a chance to surprise us in a wide variety of ways.
2: Yeah, and a, a, a good thing, a good example of that um, is tiny galaxies, so galaxies that are low mass. So right now, we're, as you're saying, we're seeing the biggest and the brightest things, the closest things, and those are the most massive galaxies. But of course, galaxies can start out small, they can merge together, uh, and eventually you build up to the massive galaxies, but, but the low mass galaxies are what is the most common. Low mass galaxies are a great example of something that is not rare, but we haven't been able to study just because we can't see them very well. We can only see them if they are very close by. And so with James Webb, specifically with the NIRCAM instrument, this imaging is going to be so sensitive and with high enough resolution, so resolution is another thing that is extremely important and, and just making leaps and bounds uh, with JWST. We're going to be able to see these low mass galaxies and an open question is how small of a galaxy can you have? How little amount of mass can you shove together and actually form something that you would call a galaxy? And we don't really know at this point. So there's a whole giant population out there of galaxies that we need to go out and explore, understand what they look like, understand how they form and change. And that tells us then something about, you know, the broader population of, ga- of galaxies that we've been looking at all this time, the massive bright ones, but still don't quite understand. And part of the clues might come from, you know, the, the small galaxies that maybe eventually can find to be the big galaxies.
0: You know, I I want to fess up to something a little embarrassing on my end here, um, which is, you know, when I learned about the local group, I learned it is, okay, we've got Andromeda, that's our bigger uh, member of the local group, we're number two, then you have the Triangulum Galaxy at number three, and then you have a few others like the Magellanic Clouds and Andromeda has two uh, smaller satellites and there are some other galaxies around that size and all told there are maybe 50 galaxies in the local group. And then I learned, okay, all told maybe there were like 60 galaxies in the local group. And I looked it up the other day and I think we're up to about 150 galaxies in the local group. Um, and I have just this hunch that number one... Um, we might not be done, even with the local group where we live, where everything is no more than four or five million light years away. And then I think about what did the Hubble extreme deep field see? That's, that's our deepest, deepest, deepest ever view of the universe, um, where we observed in multiple different wavelength bands the same patch of sky for a cumulative total of 23 days. That is by far the most deeply observed patch of sky uh, ever. Well, we found in this region of space, I'll do the math for you, that takes up 132 millionth of the sky, we found 5,500 galaxies in there. And if you do your multiplication and you extrapolate that over the entire sky, you would estimate that there are 170 billion galaxies in the observable universe. But when we do our theoretical calculations and we instead say, you know, galaxies come on a spectrum and, you know, you have a few high mass ones and you have more intermediate mass ones, but most of what exists is clustered way down there at the low mass end, we estimate there are about two trillion galaxies in the universe, which means that Hubble even with its deepest view ever, has seen less than 10% of the galaxies we expect to be out there. Do you think there's a chance that the James Webb Space Telescope is going to cause us to revise this picture further? Do you think it's going to help us measure these smallest, faintest galaxies that maybe we only have a few examples of, something like Segway 1 or Segway 3, um, that maybe we don't really know how many of them are out there? Does James Webb have the power to fundamentally alter how we think about the small galaxies that are out there in the universe?
1: I think that it's highly likely that it will force us to change our picture of the sort of the smallest galaxies that we know of in the universe so you're you're talking about the lower limit at which a galaxy can evolve in terms of mass
0: right i would imagine that if you are a gravitationally bound clump of normal matter and dark matter and you have stars inside um that I can justify calling you a galaxy all on your own as long as you're not a component of a larger structure that itself is a galaxy.
2: Except yeah. it's, it's maybe not that simple because there are people now finding these uh, ultra-diffuse galaxies and claiming that they don't have any dark matter.
0: Yeah, so they, they are claiming that and it's still uh, you know hotly debated about how did these form. Um, And I think that everywhere that they have formed, it's generally accepted that it's one of two explanations, which is either these were formed by normal matter that was ripped out of a galaxy that contained dark matter, and it formed stars and gravitated to form its own, you know... It exists now, it won't exist forever, but it exists right now, it's a clump of stars with no dark matter in it, or it was a galaxy that had stars and dark matter. But because the dark matter is so much bigger and more diffuse, like it's this giant fluffy distribution, whereas the stars and the normal matter is all concentrated in the center, that when it comes close to another larger galaxy, these tidal forces rip the galaxy apart from the outside in. So the outermost stuff, which is all dark matter, gets stripped away, and then the inner mower stuff, that's still all dark matter, gets ripped away. And so when we're seeing them now, we're seeing them where almost all of the dark matter's been removed, and it's just mostly normal matter and a little bit of dark matter that's left, that's at the center, that's still there. Those are the two stories I know of for what we think these ultra-diffuse galaxies are and where they came from. But like I said earlier, you have to give the universe a chance to surprise us because just because this is a nice story that I can tell doesn't mean that this is universally correct.
2: Yeah, that's right. And oftentimes, if you look historically, when, we, when we're when we pushing boundaries like this, we have to redefine things. So we might have to come up with a, a different definition for galaxy. We might have to decide What is a galaxy, and what isn't a galaxy, depending on these different, you know, kind of pathways that the the the, these altered diffuse objects could form. Um, And I think that that goes back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, do we understand as much as we can about the local group? You would think the local group we it's right there, we can figure it out. But not only do we continue to find these low mass faint galaxies in our own local group. Uh, We also have evidence that there's been interactions with our own Milky Way. We find tidal streams through the Milky Way. And these things are also very faint and very difficult to spot. But once you do spot them, then you you understand that there might have been, in fact, more galaxies uh, that have, in fact, merged with the Milky Way. And you can kind of try and figure out from what the tidal streams look like. You can kind of try and recreate how that interaction happened. And so one of the things that's really nice for this with JWST is our higher resolution, because not only is the large mirror a larger light bucket, so it's more sensitive, but it allows us to look at finer details. And the infrared is particularly tricky for this because the finest detail you look at is, it depends on how big your mirror is and what wavelength you're looking at. And the longer wavelength you're looking at, the bigger mirror you ha- you need. That's, why, that's one of the reasons why JWST is so big uh and so now we can look at detail on the level that hst was able to look at and being able to do that means that you can look at local galaxies in a lot of detail and then even farther away galaxies you can start to look at their insides and and as you were just saying you can picture kind of scenarios where uh, a galaxy is being stripped outside in by some kind of external force or you can picture scenarios where a galaxy is being stripped from the inside out maybe you have a black hole that's accreting so much material that it's just it's just uh blowing material back out we know that these exist, these quasars and radio jets uh, and so one of the big questions in astronomy right now is how galaxies are quenched so how they stop forming stars and so you need the resolution to be able to look inside the galaxy to start to disentangle these scenarios Does it start to quench from the outside in or the inside out and that can tell you which kind of mechanism is doing the quenching
0: that's really interesting so you can sort of look at a galaxy and see where it's forming stars where it's not forming stars like if you it's basically what i'm what i'm hearing is you you just have to play this game of looking at enough galaxies because all you're getting is a snapshot So you just need to look at enough of them that you see them at the critical time where this process of star formation is being ended, where it's still maybe ongoing or it just ended really recently in some parts, but in other parts it ended earlier. And from looking at that, you can tell... Why is it ceasing to form stars? Is it an outside in or an inside out cessation of this? And what other signals are there? You know, I imagine with something as powerful as James Webb, including with its spectroscopic capabilities, that you can look at signatures of specific atoms and molecules that may be excited or maybe de exciting, or you can look at specific um, emission signatures that only happen under certain conditions. Um, and so, is this, um, is this something where you think, you know, wow, for the first time, we're actually going to get answers? to these questions that James Webb will be able to teach us. How does star formation come to an end in galaxies? Or rather, what are the different ways that star formations comes to an end? And which ones are more typical and which ones are more seldom? Uh,
1: Yeah, I guess I can answer that question. JWST is going to sort of open a new window where we can look at specific Tracers like hydrogen emission that we can link back directly to just something simple like the number of stars that form in a galaxy at a given period of time, and um, you know that seems like a pretty simple, uh, obvious thing to measure about a galaxy, like how how many new stars form in it. But uh, we still don't have a really good measurement for that, and in certain you know periods of time in the universe. So JWC is going to open up a new window for us to measure the, the actual number of stars that are forming. Um, and so that's a really important thing to measure if you're going to understand whether or not a galaxy is actually stopping its period of growth. So I think it's going to help us better understand what that end of life looks like for galaxies and with it's higher, cause it's going to have this high resolution, like you guys were saying with this big light bucket, uh, that, that lets us see better detail of the internal structure of galaxies. And that can help us understand where the the forces that stop star formation initiate inside the galaxy, whether or not it's coming from the center, where we know there's a black hole growing or whether or not it just sort of dies out uniformly across the whole galaxy at the same time. These are, you know, important tracers that would help us better understand what forces are stopping star formation in galaxies.
2: And we uh, we talked a little bit earlier about this peak epoch of star formation and how uh, there's a time in the universe, some three billion years after the Big Bang, when galaxies are forming stars as efficiently as they basically can. And then that efficiency starts to, to ramp down. And then when you get down to redshift zero, when you get to the local universe, galaxies aren't forming stars very efficiently anymore. The, ma- the Milky Way is a massive galaxy, but we're forming maybe a few solar masses or a few stars per year. Uh, Whereas at the peak of efficiency, you can be forming hundreds of stars, thousands of stars even. And so we want to understand why we had this peak efficiency and then why it ramped back down. And this goes back to how you form stars. So you form stars by collapsing gas uh, into a small area. So the gas has to be cold and has to be in a small area. And we know that galaxies back at this peak peak epoch have a lot more gas So maybe they just have a lot more gas and so they're forming a lot more stars, but maybe there's something more to it. Maybe the conditions of that gas are different. And so James Webb will be able to address this in a couple of ways. Uh, One is by looking at the spectroscopy that you just mentioned, uh, looking at emission lines that are being generated by different atoms and molecules. And we can compare these different uh, emission lines and how they compare to each other to see what is Um, how things are being heated within the galaxy. So we can see what's being heated, what kind of gas, how it's being heated. You have like a radiation field in a galaxy, which is going to affect things and heat them all over the galaxy. And so you want to know how this is happening uh, in the gas in the galaxy to try and then say, okay, under these conditions, we can form these many stars. And uh, with the mid-infrared instrument, you can additionally look at the dust that we talked about earlier. So the dust is being heated by these young stars. And so if you can look at that in a detailed way, you can figure out what kind of heating is going on in the gas in the galaxy. And then you can go to another facility like ALMA, the ALMA telescope, um, and combine that with JWST because ALMA can pick up on lines that tell us about cooling. So now you understand how things are being heated and how things are being cooled. And you can kind of work out then uh, how efficiently you can form stars in these galaxies.
0: Well, that's kind of interesting. I love the idea of combining observations from different observatories and at different wavelengths because they allow you to synthesize together a more complete picture. Um, I know that people had hopes or expectations for what James Webb would be able to see, but this was all done prior to the telescope's launch, deployment, and commissioning. Uh, at the time we're doing this interview, James Webb's commissioning is almost complete. It's almost finished with that, at least from from my perspective. You might say, like, no, 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 we've still got weeks of stuff to do, and it's very important, and we're not close to done. But I, I'm looking at it, and I'm like, look, uh, most of the steps have been taken, and what remains are just the last steps before it can begin science operations how has commissioning gone compared to those expectations are there ways that uh james webb has fallen short of what we expected it to be are there ways that it's met our lofty expectations and are there even ways that it's exceeded what we hoped it would perform at
2: so uh there's a really great website. Um, it's actually a blog being run by NASA. So it's blogs.nasa.gov slash web. And it is giving all of the brilliant uh, updates on how commissioning has been going in a lot of detail. And so if people are interested, they should definitely go check that out. Um, recently, commissioning has completed uh, the checkout of the telescope optics, uh, and the instruments have been re- aligned. and we released this image of the focal plane. So the focal plane is kind of the plane perpendicular to the axis of the telescope where all the instruments are kind of sitting and they're receiving light. And they released this image of the focal plane with all of the instruments taking data of the large Magellanic Cloud, which is one of the satellite galaxies of the Milky Way. And it is just absolutely gorgeous. It is a test image for focusing the telescope. So they're testing uh, the image quality that we're gonna get with James Webb and it is, it's exceeding our expectations. We had, you know, we had something we were aiming for and it's, it's even better than that. And it's just an amazing image. Uh, this tons of stars in, in, in gorgeous focus. And then for the mid-infrared instrument, we also see a little bit of dust uh, because we're out there at seven microns. And that is just, it, yeah, I saw that image and I was just absolutely blown away.
0: I mean, you, you have, people can't see that, but you have a similar look on your face to the, uh, look on her face that Katie Bowman had when she, uh, got to see the image of the M87 black hole for the first time, the very, very first time anyone had seen an image of a black hole's actual event horizon. Um, you, both of you have spent, uh, a large part of your professional and, I guess, entire lives um, working on exactly this, working on James Webb, working on the instruments, working on, you know, basically preparing for this moment. And yes, there's wonderful science to do that you will be doing uh, that we can talk about in a minute. But can I ask you a little bit on the instrument side, what it's like to devote so much time and effort into getting this thing ready, getting this thing into shape, um, and then seeing that first image and getting an even bigger payoff than you were expecting.
1: Yeah, I guess for me, like, you know, being a part of a team that basically helped this telescope come online has been a huge, very rewarding experience for me. And, you know, the the things that we did to sort of prepare for this telescope are you know, tiny, there's a huge number of people that were contributing to this, but, but it's been really rewarding to see sort of see it all come together. And um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's basically been one of the highlights of my career to, to be on this team.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, just the scale of James Webb, I mean, it's, it's. It's NASA. It's the European Space Agency. It's the Canadian Space Agency. So we've already got three major space agencies. There's many, many countries involved. So so many people that have come together to really put this. I mean, and it's an en- engineering marvel. It's just like something that is unlike anything we've ever done before. And so being able to to have a small part in that, you know, to try and help them figure out how to best use the detectors on Miri. You know, it, it was it's a small thing, but you feel like you're just part of this huge global effort to do something that's just uh, amazing. And the launch, I I was actually a little bit surprised. Uh, the launch and the first image, I was surprised by I, by just my reaction to it. Um, one of our one of our collaborators likes to. He's not really teasing me, but he likes to um, point out that I was a, a crying a little bit during the launch because <laughs> it was just so amazing, and it was just like this buildup of pressure because you know it had to go right, and then it did. And it, it not only went right, the, the launch went perfect. Um, and everything since then, it's just kind of been one after another, just kind of like things going well. And so, you know, knock on wood, but um, yeah, it's been a wild ride.
0: Well, you're not alone in that at all. I, I am someone who woke up at about 4 a.m. on Christmas morning, To watch the launch where i am and uh i did watch the james webb space telescope launch and um i like i don't know how to describe it i felt like my heart was soaring watching this unfold and about 27 minutes into the launch Uh, when I saw the solar panel start to deploy and I knew that that was ahead of schedule and what it means to be ahead of schedule, um, because it wasn't going to come out unless all of the necessary conditions were met. And when I saw that solar panel coming out, that was like the moment where I really knew for the first time, like, wow, this is This did not just go as well as you could have expected. This is like something here, at least something here is going better than people had even dared to hope for. Um, And so, you know, yeah, I mean, it might sound like the nerdiest thing of all that, like, it's one of the most memorable Christmases of my life was waking up at 4 a.m. to watch this launch on a tiny screen with my headphones on so I didn't wake anyone else in the house up but but that that moment was like wow like this is something that was for for many people years or even decades of their life for hundreds and thousands of scientists who worked on this and who still work on this um this is like this is the achievement of a career uh and i just think about all of the people both of you included who had to come together and play their part in order to make this possible um and now we're we're looking at it and the news we're getting is stuff we didn't dare to dream of that you know everything performed at or better than we expected that the images are coming back and the instruments are performing better than their design specifications called for and the lifetime of web which was supposed to be between five and a half and ten years they're now saying or i'm now hearing you might have heard something even more up to date uh that we can expect about 20 years of science observations instead of five to ten um so I don't think you were alone at being moved to tears at uh, at seeing the culmination uh, all in one critical moment of of this observatory, literally taking our dreams one and a half million kilometers from Earth.
2: Yeah. And we weren't even supposed to see the solar panel. I mean, it was just a, it was a chance alignment and then the launch going perfect that allowed us to, to get that on camera. And so that was a huge surprise, and it, yeah, it was just the best surprise. And yeah, and so the launch going so perfectly means we can serve fuel. And so now, now when we talk about the lifetime of the telescope, it might not be the fuel that limits us, you know, because it, it's a telescope; it has moving parts. Things are eventually going to wear out, right? So we haven't heard anything more updated on the lifetime of the telescope. I don't know that there are going to be. Uh, projections soon, because it's kind of a, a new ballgame now, it's like, well, fuel isn't the thing that necessarily will run out first. So who knows, uh, we're gonna have to see how things go, how efficiently the telescope operates, uh, how well the moving mechanisms continue to work. And so, yeah, it's, it's just, it's really exciting.
0: Well, I'm, I'm happy to speculate on all the other ways that Webb could die other than running out of fuel, but I'm also very happy to not speculate about that and to leave that up to people's imaginations, where hopefully their imaginations are the only place that will occur. Christina, you were going to say something before I so rudely interrupted you.
1: Oh, no, I was just going to
0: add a behind-the-scenes uh,
1: experience with the commissioning like you know a lot of the blog shows a lot of the sort of end results but sort of the human experience of being in the control room while operating this new telescope for the first time has been kind of exciting to just you know like I I happened to be on shift at three in the morning uh, when they had first light on the telescope and just even just watching the expressions on all the other scientists faces in the control room when people saw the first image for the first time was like It was just a great experience to see everybody else's awe too, not just your feel your own awe.
0: Now now we fast forward and we come up to the present day. Um, And we are, at the time of this recording, we're just a few weeks away from the beginning of science observations. And I know that both of you are parts of proposals where you have a substantial amount of observing time and there are going to be uh, some really interesting uh, pieces of science that are going to come back. Can I ask you to describe for us uh, what maybe one or two of the most exciting things to you uh, that you will be a part of uh, the James Webb Space Telescope looking at, and what what for the f- like basically you two are going to get to be the first people in all of humanity to learn certain things about the universe. Um, I, I can't imagine what that excitement is like, because I'm a theorist, like all we do is guess. We we don't know anything, we don't discover things, we guess at them and we try to put puzzle pieces together that other people have already observed, or we we imagine what could be out there and we tell people, hey, go look for this, but we don't get to be the first to see it what are the things you're going to be looking for and what are you really excited to be among the very first to learn about the universe?
1: I think I'm really excited to see some of the galaxies that are just totally invisible to us right now. So, you know, there's a large number of galaxies like we talked about that are invisible to us, but I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the ones in the very beginning of the universe that we can't see. And you know, what those will look like and what we think the stars in those galaxies will be like. Um, So I'm interested in that and I'm excited about learning more about the fate of massive galaxies, like what happens when galaxies end their growth phase. And right now it's very difficult for us to find galaxies like that in the most distant universe when they first start ending their, their life cycles because they're very red, basically. It makes it very difficult to find them, even though they're very massive. So um, so those are the two things that I'm, I think I'm most excited to see.
0: That's, that's a really big thing. You know, we talked about how Um, You know, the universe starts off with no stars in it and then stars start to form and you form stars at higher and higher and higher rates until the universe is about three billion years old. And then star formation peaks and falls off. And today, I think it's only about three percent of what it was at its highest value. But also, uh, it takes the universe a long time to reach that peak. When we're talking about finding those first galaxies, those early galaxies, we're looking within the first billion or even just the first few hundred million years of the universe. And by the time the universe is one billion years old, it's only formed about 1% of the stars that it's formed by the present day. So you're looking not only at these pristine objects, or these less evolved and earlier type objects, but you're also looking at the universe when there were very few stars in it at all to be able to teach us about what's going on. I have a feeling that you might very well find... um, you know, especially if you can see the brightest objects, you might be able to see galaxies that stop forming stars or that star formation is turning off in uh, much earlier than many astronomers are expecting.
1: Yeah, I think that if we were to find that, that that galaxies turn off well before sort of the, the current going theories project that i mean that would really change that would have to change how we think about how galaxies form and evolve that would be like a paradigm shifter in terms of our understanding of the universe in my
0: opinion well i'm 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 actually gonna go on record and i'm gonna bet on that because the uh the big the big thing that uh you know that i'm aware of is back in 2014 there was this uh Review paper uh, by two scientists, Medow and Dickinson, that talked about the star formation history of the universe. If you're if you're a super astronomy nerd or a professional astronomer, chances are you know this paper. Um, And it made measurements for what's the star formation rate out to where we have measurements for it. And then it extrapolated what do we expect at higher redshifts at earlier times. And since that time, it's been less than a decade, but since that time, we've gotten more observations and they do not agree with the Medow and Dickinson extrapolation. And so... I'm really curious about, you know, look, the universe has already surprised us without new tools like James Webb. What sort of surprises is Webb going to bring along with it? And I'm absolutely sure that the answer is some. It will bring some surprise along with it. How about you, Stacey? What are you most excited to be researching and learning about? can I guess that it might have something to do with dust? Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah that would be a good guess. Uh, it also has to do with black holes. I keep bringing those up. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm interested and most excited in a couple of programs we have to use MIRI uh, to look in the mid-infrared wavelengths uh, to find these hidden black holes that are hidden behind dust that we just we haven't been able to see them. We don't know how many are out there. And Miri is nice because at the short wavelength, then you can look for these hidden black holes and at the long wavelength end, you can find the star formation that's hidden behind dust. So one of the reasons that that Maddow Dickinson plot is a little bit uncertain and as we get to higher redshift is because we don't know how much dust is out there and we don't currently have the facilities to see that dust. Uh, and, you know, so if there's more dust, it'll move things in one direction. If there's less dust, it'll move things in the other direction. Um, and so. We want to find the, the activity that's hidden behind this dust and then link it together, you know, these, because we we're pretty sure that galaxies are influenced by their black holes. But it's just so hard to figure it out because the black hole is just this tiny scale in the center of the galaxy. So we use like parsecs, you know, it's like parsec scales and the galaxy itself is kiloparsecs multiple up to 10, you know, 10-ish kiloparsecs in size. And so it's like, how can this tiny black hole in the center be affecting this, this very extended massive galaxy? And we're pretty sure that they evolve together and they affect each other. But figuring out that link has been really hard. And part of the reason is, again, that we're just missing a bunch of the black holes and we're missing a bunch of the star formation. And so we have to go out into the infrared and we have to look for this activity that's hidden behind dust. And so we have a program to do this at that peak epoch. And then we have a program to look at local galaxies. So we've picked out the galaxies, local galaxies that are the most dustiest galaxies that we know about. uh, And we can't find the black hole in them, no matter how we look. We've gone out and looked in all the ways, there's many ways we can look for black holes and we can't find them. So the last last way we have to look uh, is enabled by JWST by going into these mid infrared wavelengths and being able to take spectroscopy and look for certain, uh, you know, atoms that are being stimulated by the energy of a black hole, but can't be can't be stimulated by anything else. Um, and so, yeah, we might be able to find black holes in those very dusty galaxies, and we're going to find them at high redshift and link them back to their star formation and try and figure out how these two things uh, kind of relate to each other, how they co-evolve.
0: So is James Webb then, uh, is it possibly going to be, um, I'll just say, sophisticated enough that The way I think about a dusty galaxy with a black hole is if you want to see the signature of the black hole, some sort of signal needs to be strong enough to be able to punch through that dust, because otherwise that dust is just going to swallow it all, that it'll be opaque and your signal won't be able to get through. But you said that what's going to happen, because the dust does two things, it also it absorbs energy, but then it also re-radiates energy. Um, So are you really going to be looking for this re-radiated energy? Are you going to be looking for emission signals from the dust directly? And James Webb just happens to be big enough, sensitive enough, and in the right wavelength range to be able to see those signals
2: yeah yeah i mean the the reason that this works the reason we can trust it is because the black hole if it's there and if it's accreting material it's giving off a ton of energy but we know that that energy is being absorbed by the dust because we don't see it in x-rays we don't see it in the shorter wavelengths like optical light but that energy has to come out somewhere. It can't just like build up forever. It has to be re-emitted. And so that is what the dust is doing. And we're seeing very, very hot dust that's being emitted by these uh, AGN, sorry, by these black holes. And that's how we're going to be able to find them. Um, but we have multiple ways to look. We're not just gonna look from, for, at the emission from dust, but also at like these, uh, we can look at, it's the neon line. So the neon line, if you excited enough, uh, into the transitions like like neon six, you know that it's a black hole doing it because the black hole is the only thing that can generate enough energy to stimulate that line. And so we can go and we can look at this in multiple ways in the mid-infrared, which we weren't able to do before. Uh, and, and really, if it's there, it, it has to be visible in the in the infrared because the energy has to come out somewhere
0: so as an astronomer when you say neon six what you're talking about neon is the tenth element on the periodic table it is Also, one of the 10 most abundant elements in the universe. Uh, When you make stars and stars start burning through their nuclear fuel, yeah, they'll fuse hydrogen into helium and helium into carbon, but you can keep adding and building up heavier elements. And so oxygen is the third most abundant element. Carbon is the fourth most abundant element in the universe. I think neon is up there at like number six or seven. It's, It's pretty high on the list of most abundant elements in the universe. But when an astronomer says neon six, that's impressive because that's a neon atom or a population of neon atoms that have had five electrons ionized off of it. So this is a neon atom that has received a lot of ionizing photons to kick these electrons off. And then you're saying what you're actually looking for is electron transitions within this neon atom. Like, you ionize things, electrons fall back onto them, and they cascade down the energy levels. Ionized atoms have a slightly different spectrum than neutral atoms, so when you get these transitions coming down, that's what you're going to be able to observe. And the only way to get neon six in the first place is if you have something that heats it up tremendously. And that's got to be a really powerful engine, like a s- active supermassive black hole.
2: Yeah, exactly. We don't know of anything else that's energetic enough to be able to make that emission line. So if we see it, it's it's obvious. We know we found the black hole.
0: Now, this, this really helps to me uh, showcase the power of spectroscopy. Uh, because one of the criticisms I've heard from the general public is... Oh, you know, James Webb is bigger than Hubble, but because resolution, the resolution that you can see is the number of wavelengths of light that can fit across your telescope's primary mirror, what you've been calling the light bucket. Um, That means when you look in the mid-infrared, these are relatively long wavelength light. James Webb can see up to about, um, you know, I want to say something like 40 or 50 times the limit of what human vision can see that the wavelengths it can see are 40 to 50 times longer than the maximum wavelength of human vision. So even though it has a bigger mirror, the mid-infrared instrument isn't going to produce these ultra-sharp images of ultra-distant galaxies. But that doesn't mean it isn't going to do amazing science and that also we won't get amazing images in, say, the near-infrared, less amazing images, but still amazing images in the mid-infrared. But it isn't all about the beautiful image you get. It's also about the quality of the science and the novel information that you learn looking at it. Is there is there something you'd like to say to people who are, Uh, a little bit, um, well, maybe less excited than they should be about the capabilities of James Webb.
2: So the in the near infrared, JWST is going to provide us similar images to Hubble. I mean, all of those beautiful HST images that everybody loves from the Hubble gallery. Those are the types of images we're going to get with JWST, except in the near in the near infrared. Yeah, Miri's resolution, uh, you go out to longer wavelengths, your resolution starts to degrade. But we are still making uh, huge gains on what we were able to see before, what we were able to see with Spitzer. I mean, we've, we've got a much bigger mirror now. And so um, we're still going to have gorgeous pictures with Miri for sure. Local galaxies will be just absolutely amazing. And even at high redshifts, for the bigger galaxies, we'll be able to see details that we have never seen before. And they are just going to be amazing images.
0: So James Webb is going to not only... Produce these beautiful images and not only take these uh, spectroscopic measurements of objects out there in the universe, but uh, there's actually extra information you can get from having this multi wavelength coverage with a single observatory when you're looking i think james webb can even go a little bit into the optical part of the spectrum it can get all of the near-infrared and it can get the mid-infrared out to i think it's something like 28 or 30 microns which means it's looking at more than a factor of 50 something like a factor of almost 60 in wavelength coverage that that's tremendous. That's, that's a large, large wavelength range to be able to see all at once with the same instrument. I know that a lot of ways we've done multi-wavelength astronomy in the past have involved taking different observatories and kind of trying to marry those observations together. Is there an advantage to being able to do this kind of broadband like i can see it in a wide variety of wavelengths all with the same observatory versus i have to go to different observatories and synthesize these disparate observations together
1: you ask all the hard questions (laughs) um there's a there's a disadvantage in in terms of looking in multiple different observatories when you have like drastically different resolutions. And when you have to wait, you know, years time scale to accumulate data across many different wavelengths. So you lose a lot of time when you have to propose to different telescopes, because you get data in one telescope, you have to propose, you have to wait for that to get approved. You have to wait for it to get observed. So that can can add years to your science experiment um, to do that. And so being able to propose in one sort of request the telescope to do many different wavelengths, there's an advantage to that because you can get all the data in a short period of time. There's also an advantage in having similar spatial resolutions across different telescopes because that can help you better interpret what the pictures are telling you about the structures and of, of galaxies and other objects in the sky, I think. Um, the thing with JWST though is that some of those tele- some of those detectors that operate in the near infrared and the mid-infrared have different footprints on the sky. So there's actually they don't quite line up with each other all that well. I think actually some of the modes of JWST that where you can observe you can get data sets efficiently for shorter periods of time is actually a really useful feature of
0: JWST. So let me let me ask you, uh, you talked a little bit about taking the observations in the most uh, efficient manner. And I know that one of the things that James Webb allows us to do is uh, basically, I think it's called parallel mode observing. Uh, And when you observe in parallel mode, that basically means one instrument is focused on one target, but you still have light that comes in that the other instruments can make use of. And so it's possible to get multiple useful observations in different instruments at the same time with the same observation it's like it's like getting a 2 for 1 so when you're talking about doing things in the most efficient way um i almost feel like there's the opportunity to get more than what you would think of as a year's worth of science operations done in a given year
1: oh yeah it's and i think this is a very exciting feature of JWST so So turning on two instruments at the same time does actually mean you get more data out of, uh, you know, per unit time of operation in the telescope. And so that gives us a lot more opportunities to do not just more science, but a larger variety of types of science uh, out of this telescope. So one thing that JWST is not very good at is mapping large areas on the sky and um, because it's... Primarily, it it uses up a lot of fuel to map large areas in the sky, but it also that takes up a lot of, of observatory time.
0: Well, it has a narrow field of view, doesn't it? Like you would basically need to take images here and here and here and here and here and here and stitch them together to observe a large region of the sky. And I'm not saying people won't do that, but people are going to need hundreds or even thousands of hours of observing times if that's their goal.
1: Yeah, so so that's true and so pure or sorry so parallel observing sort of opens up this new opportunity to collect a large area of sky mapping without having to do that. So you can just turn on a second detector and sort of piggyback on other people's science projects. So I think that's a really exciting feature of JWST. I mean Hubble also had this feature where you could turn on a second detector. Uh, the thing about Hubble was that, you know, when you when you do that, you really only got one picture. But with uh, with JWST, some of those instruments, in particular the near infrared camera, you can actually, in addition to being uh, taking data from near cam while you're observing in a different instrument, near cam actually takes two
0: pictures at the same time itself. So, are you saying that you can get more than a two for one? That you can kind of get a three for one? Yeah. yeah so actually NearCam itself is always two for one um so you can actually do
1: if you're using NearCam as one of those instruments that you piggyback on or if it near Cam is the piggyback instrument then you you actually get three for one yes
0: that's pretty exciting <laughs> that's pretty exciting. yeah
1: yeah i think so it, i think it's exciting um so i mean there's this also has enabled people to design their sort of their science project in a much more efficient way by you know if they need to measure things with two different detectors, they can, they can design their, their science experiment to do that in a coordinated way so that it uses up less time on the observatory. Um, And so I think that's enabled us to pack in a lot of science in JWST's first year. So
0: yeah, I'm really excited for what we're going to find. I, I would be willing to bet in this first year of science operations, starting I believe in July 2022, what we're going to see is, yeah, we'll probably break the record for the farthest galaxy we've ever seen. That's kind of an easy one for Webb with its suite of instruments. We're probably going to find um, candidates for populations of stars in galaxies that contain population three stars, although I doubt we'll find population three stars all by themselves. Uh, I'd be willing to bet that uh, some of what we were talking about, about seeing fainter galaxies than we've ever seen, seeing certain details in galaxies, like perhaps evidence for black holes in dusty environments, um, that that will show up probably in the first year as well. Are there any other what you would consider slam dunks that, you know, wow, um, keep your eyes peeled for this, because I bet you uh, when you come back in a year, this thing that we don't know today, we'll probably know a year from now.
1: I guess I would say that the slam dunk is going to be something that we have not even thought of yet, that there, there's going to be discoveries that just blow our mind. And we just weren't, we didn't even know enough to expect that outcome. Do you know what I mean?
0: So you're saying bet on the universe will surprise us. Bet I'm saying bet
1: that- on the universe. Yes, I'm saying bet on the universe surprising us because it's it's almost always been the case that anytime we've sort of explored new parameter space in the universe, we've usually been surprised by what we found. Um, so so I'm saying expect that. I think it's I think it's highly probable that we'll have totally unexpected discoveries.
0: I like that. Expect the (gasps) Unexpectable. I'm in on that. that. So so I love the idea of expecting um, some discoveries that we haven't really been able to anticipate because we are, as you said, looking at the universe in ways that we've never looked at it before with far superior capabilities to how we've ever looked in the infrared before we're talking about factors of between 10 and 100 better sensitivity for jwst as compared to spitzer Wise, herschel or any observatory in that same wavelength range that's looked before Um, and so i'd love to ask you what messages you'd like to share with people out there who are listening who might be curious about infrared astronomy and what we have the potential to learn about the universe with a brand new uh flagship observatory
1: i do really feel like you know science is not done by uh individual people that as much now as it as it is teams of people working together to produce you know data sets that would be impossible with the effort of just one person so so I, I think it's useful to think of jwst as a you know it's it's sort of the culmination of, of many people's efforts and and specialties and and efforts to sort of put together something big for humanity like humanity's first look at the distant universe or at you know earth-like planets or
0: something like that when you were when you were starting out uh, in this field as uh, either an undergrad or a beginning graduate student, was this ever something that you would have thought you would have been a part of? Would you did you foresee yourself becoming a part of the instrument science team, um, getting to work on James Webb and getting to be one of the very first people to get to take data and learn science from the telescope?
1: No, I, I didn't. Uh, I think I became involved sort of through a bunch of luck, basically. But I think, um, you know, when I first started my PhD, I was JWST was a thing that was on the horizon eventually, but I just it wasn't ready. And it, I, I just didn't think about it as much. I was also working at uh, at much longer wavelengths. I was uh, working primarily as a submillimeter in submillimeter astronomy, which is
0: much much longer wavelengths, sort of like radio waves. Oh, but that's amazing though, because now uh, that you're working on James Webb, and we're talking about doing observations of the same objects with JWST and Alma where uh, the M in ALMA stands for millimeter slash submillimeter because astronomers are that good at acronyms. Um, You know, that kind of gives you a bit of a unique background that you come to JWST with a background in longer wavelengths of astronomy than most of the members of the team.
1: Yeah, I think I am extremely excited about the science that JWST is going to do in conjunction with other telescopes, in particular, ALMA, which is this um, large array of of millimeter and submillimeter wave dishes in Chile. And so the power there, I think, is that, uh, you know, JWST will, will be able to see the stars and galaxies, and Alma will be able to see the cold gas and the dust in galaxies. And putting those together really gives you a much more complete picture of galaxies than we've ever been able to see before. So I think, at least in the distant universe, and so I'm, I'm extremely excited about the power of those two telescopes working
0: together. Yeah, I... I think having observatories like that, and I'm also, by the way, still excited that James Webb is going to get some time where it overlaps with Hubble, where Hubble and JWST will be in orbit at the same time, like being able to observe the same object with different observatories that have different sensitivities, different wavelength coverages, that's how we really learn collectively what seeing this one thing means for the object or seeing these two or three things together what it means is going on in the universe so i really do think that this is this is where you know some of the most serendipitous and hard to predict discoveries are going to come from is not just because we saw something we didn't expect, but because we saw a combination of things that we never imagined could coexist together before.
1: Yeah. And I I think it's important to recognize that Hubble has done a lot of important work at visible wavelengths. And it's going to be extremely complementary to JWST in that there are there are certain parameter spaces of the distant universe where like certain sort of epics of the distant universe where it becomes extremely favorable to have visible light from hubble in conjunction with jwst in order to sort of better identify the distances to galaxies and better understand the types of stars they have and the you know other other characteristics of galaxies that are important for our understanding of how they form and evolve so So yes, I think Hubble, ALMA, lots of other telescopes, I think working together are gonna do really great science.
0: I mean, and that's, that's the ultimate lesson is if you want to know what the universe is really like and what it's really doing, there's never a substitute for going out and looking no matter how sure you are of your physical theories, no matter how strongly you expect things to be one way and not the other way. There's no substitute for going out and making those measurements and observations yourself. The universe will only surprise us if we give a chance to. And that means we have to look. So thank you, Christina. Thank you, Stacy. This was research professor Dr. Christina Williams and research professor Dr. Stacy Alberts joining me on the Starts With a Bang podcast. And the Starts With a Bang podcast has only been made possible thanks to the generous donation of our Patreon supporters. I'd like to thank everyone supporting Starts With a Bang on Patreon at the $5 a month level and above. So thanks go out to Brian Kinsella, Chad Marler, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, George Jeff Boutel, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Chris Jakutas, John Meathot, John Van Balaguyan, Matt Conroe, Pattern Shift, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expedition, Sea Green Mango, Stefan Berneger, William Blair, Amira sosnick Andy and Wall, Tech LLC, Brian Terry, Danny, David Charney, Denier, Flo, Frank, George Church, Jerry Wilterding, John Kozura, Joseph Dvorak, Jose Enrique, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Killio opu. Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafael Wojcicki, Randall Slimak, Rick Baker, Sean Foley, Steve Guderian, The Human, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Perique, Andres Chovanek, Arnulfo Ben Head, Bob Shire, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Carl Iddings, Casey Haskins, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, Darren Redford, David Hibbits, David Tascioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabrielle Nadare, Glenn McDavid, Hellbender, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Lu Lutri- Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Jeff Reneke, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Michael Hall, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hannon, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Sam Terzakian, Steve Schaber, Stuart Lending, Tina Talon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Tommy White, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Vanden Heuvel, and Youngko S., Thanks everyone for tuning in and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang.